This is the Breaking Down Incident Response Podcast. We are your hosts, Brian Betcher. And I am Michael Goff. Hello and welcome to BDIR. Let's go over a show summary. Um, Well, we're going to talk about our sponsors. We do have some newsworthy items. Next would be Malware of the Month. And then we have some websites to show you on our site-worthy segment. Then we'll go into some tools in our tool-worthy segment. And of course, we'll talk about our topic of the day after that. Now a word from our sponsor. This podcast is also brought to you by LogMD, the log and malicious discovery tool for Windows-based systems for IT, InfoSec, IR, and forensics professionals. It helps you assess your audit log settings against several industry standards, including the Windows Logging Cheat Sheet, so you can improve your logging to collect all the right things. LogMD can also be used to hunt for targeted, malicious, and interesting artifacts such as large registry keys, autoruns, WMI persistence, malicious PowerShell execution, and targeted log events that can then be collected by your log management solution. LogMD provides more details and easy-to-read reports than your EDR solutions can provide. We offer free, professional, and consulting licenses. Discover it. Discover LogMD today at log-md.com. And now let's introduce our guest, Advar Mo. Hi there. Thank you for having me. Advar, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, what you're going to do or hope to do, things like that, and where you came from. Yeah, so uh, as I said, my name is Advar Mo. I I live in Norway. Um, I work for a company called uh, Trusted Sec. Uh, and there I work as a senior security consultant on uh, on the AATR. <laughs> uh, so uh, basically, I'm a red teamer. Boo! Before that, I was... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Before that, I, was, uh, I worked a lot of years uh, being a Microsoft consultant. That's how I started my career. So I've done my fair share of setting up Active Directory, deploying group policies, helping customers get their infrastructure into shape. So I started with security in 2012, and I have been doing that ever since. Yeah, so that's basically me. All right, and again, welcome, and thanks for joining and dropping up some knowledge on uh, on our topic. Now let's go into some newsworthy items. Newsworthy. It is October, and it is Cybersecurity Awareness Month, if you didn't know. I didn't know that. Um, Did it really? It's, no, I knew that. <laughs> So it's our uh, it's our time to share something that can help small medium businesses, your family, your friends, do something for the community. I guess all three of us are are good because we're putting on the podcast. <laughs> nice. Uh, did we have anything else? Uh, no, just uh, make people aware and acknowledge that this is a, a time to share improvement in security. So you know, Odver, go up there and secure all the Norway things for uh, for everybody. <laughs> Yeah, yeah I, I do that every day. <laughs> Help your mom or dad also with their stuff as well. Yeah, good luck yeah. with that. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's tough out there. It is. If you, if you don't know um, as much as we do, it, it is really hard to uh, secure your personal devices. So next we have uh, a flaw with sudo that lets you get admin privs uh, even when you're denied. 
Yeah, I came across just a blurb about this. There wasn't any details about it, but I thought it was worth mentioning because you know, we tend to talk a lot about Windows, but this is a Nix Arena Mac area where sudo, and basically this is kind of how you give yourself root access or administrative access to machine. It's like this uh, flaw is, is exploitable by uh, folks, so if you get onto a box, you can potentially get root level privileges. The fix for this is just patch, 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 so look out for it for your operating systems of choice and, and go seek and, and patch these flaws because uh, you know somebody like oddvar gets in a box and he comes across this and knows how to exploit it then you know you, know, you think you're it's game over it's game over <laughs> raise the white flag all right so next uh microsoft enables tamper protection by default for all windows 10 users to defend against attacks score right yeah at first i thought oh great another enterprise only feature but actually they are going to do this for free or for home users as well and the idea here is i know uh brian and i we see this all the time where malware will kick a script off or do some settings that will disable windows defender and this is another uh, attempt to keep them from doing that and potentially uh, trigger on whatever nefarious activities they're doing. So yeah, we're starting to see more and more of these uh, features with Windows Defender or ATP, uh, as they call it in the cloud in the, in the enterprise environment. So um, I just, I, I guess, a, a pitch for please use Windows Defender, even if you're using something else. It's built into the box. Microsoft's making all kinds of kernel changes and memory changes that are causing uh, memory forensics people some. Uh, some grief. I talked to Andrew Case about this, and and us as grief too. We we wanted to use one of the volatility features with LogMD and and can't in the later versions of Windows 10 because of all these changes. So be aware, um, this is a good thing, and, and it's going to be automatic, not just to enterprise, but also home users. So yay to Microsoft for that. And it'll it'll uh, do things like avoid disable real time protection. We see that a lot of malware. Disable cloud deliver protection. Turning off uh, IOAV protection against attachments. Disable may. Uh, behavior monitoring and turn off security intelligent updates so it's going to protect against all those uh, features that tend to get attacked by malware and, and nefarious people like Odvar when he attacks systems so so kudos to Microsoft okay and next uh, most Americans don't know what MFA is does that speak to Norwegians as well yeah we have <laughs> sometimes you have to use the right term in order for people to understand what you're talking about uh, we have different words for MFA in Norway. So like some people say in the US, 2FA, MFA, multi-factor authentication device. <laughs> so we have the same in Norway. But I think maybe the most of Norwegians know what an MFA is due to the fact that we have to use it in order to log into our bank accounts already. We have a system called Bank ID. So basically, you have to always have a two-factor authentication in order to access your bank account details. Yeah. So in America, we, we now have that little picture. So you choose a picture and then you know it's your actual bank. That's pretty much all we have as a requirement for logging into your banks right now. So at least we have the picture. I have a security question. Yeah. So we have like a system where when I log into my bank account, I get a push notification to my phone and there's a text on the page and the text on my phone. And I have to verify that they are the same. And then I have to enter a pin on my phone and then I will able to get access. So it's it's pretty pretty good. Yeah, I, I wish we had it more here. The reason this caught my eye, Brian and I are obviously involved in blue teaming all the time. And, and anytime someone's email goes down, MFA is always like the recommendation, right? That please use MFA. It's obviously cyber awareness cybersecurity awareness month and uh, i think most people and try having this conversation with my parents uh, i just 
man, sometimes <laughs> my patience level isn't there, especially with my father. But the lack of understanding of this is kind of a big deal because so many of us recommend it. And even if it's your phone, like my parents don't really have a text phone, so they would have to have a football or a dongle or, you know, a token or whatever terms we hear, use here in the U.S. And uh, that's kind of foreign to them. Uh, my dad actually does have one for something. It's like, it's like that thing. You know, what do you call that thing? This is this, this little this little fob. Yeah, that thing. <laughs> you know, it's, people should be aware of it because we are recommending it. Um, for example, if you're running Office uh, uh, 365 or Outlook 365, Exchange 365, whatever you want to call it, and you are not protecting that with MFA, um, bummer, right? That'd be like the number one recommendation, VPNs, etc. If you're facing the internet and you're logging into it, MFA is hugely important. So Pew Research did this. I, I think this is important because it means Americans don't know that it's there and it's available to lots of solutions we use on our phones, on our iPads, on our tablets on our you know accounts and it should be something that, that people are aware of because anything to do with usernames this is a huge improvement so kind of shocking which led into our next topic <laughs> yeah speaking of uh, uh sophos reports hackers bypassing some 2fa security that the uh, fbi is warning us of yeah brian and i talked about this probably what a couple months ago when we first heard about this and I, I'm not a fan, but the by the fact they're calling this a bypass. Now, I don't, Advar, I don't know what you think a bypass is, but me, a bypass is I don't need to ask or interact with a person or thing. I can literally just bypass it, and that's not what this is. This is more of social engineering, where they, uh, in the course of communicating with an individual or the attacker convinces the employee or the person to uh, offer up this this code or. Uh, to help them, et cetera, right? So it's it's a lot of this is social engineering. I don't consider that bypass. You know, I consider that more of an exploitation of, you know, again, social engineering. I brought that up only because I, I think these articles, we have to be careful when we say, you know, when people blurt out, hey, but it can be bypassed. Well, that's not really true. It's not bypassed. It's social engineered out of you because users love to give up information. Yeah, and you see all the other tools out there as well that are like are for bypassing 2FA. Mostly it's like social engineering attacks. <laughs> making them authenticate to your web server and you steal their token. Yeah, we've we've seen that in phishing attacks for sure. I, I would say that this is not an exploit. It's more of a social engineering attack. Yeah, and we've seen that too. We, we've, uh, we get cred stealers and then it says, please enter your token. And we're like, whoa, uh, I hope they're watching because they're going to get a good token. One, 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 one. You know, because we always mess with them. <laughs> yep, yeah. Interesting data. People are starting to social engineer these out of people. I wouldn't call them uh, bypassing, but anyway. So please press get the get the details a little more accurate, and I might have to get Chet Wisniewski a hard time over this one. My buddy over there at Sophos. Yeah. Um, please use the right terms. Oh, does anybody have anything next? Recent, recent. Pitney Bowes got some ransomware, but you know it's ransomware. What else is there? <laughs> All right. So next topic, please. Site-worthy. All right, so site-worthy items. Ooh, looks like we have um, a cool-looking site here. Malware archaeology. <laughs> yeah, malware archaeology under logging. Go to the logging page. There is a list of binaries to monitor for, which includes lulbins from Odvar site. And uh, so since we are going to be talking about this very subject and, and what got us here, and me reaching out to Advar about this. Yeah, go take a look at that list. I've referred a few people to it. Uh, this is what we use to monitor. Uh, it's a list of, of administrative binaries and also whitelist uh, application bypass utilities, which kind of morphed into 
bulb ends. And uh, we watch for these executions in, in quantity. It's a good list. It does reference Oddmar's stuff, so it's the most complete list. And even Casey Smith told me, uh, yeah, go look at Oddmar's stuff. He has the latest and greatest. Oh. So. Wow, that's uh, that's something. <laughs> well, he, I guess he got tired of maintaining it, right? His GitHub page is kind of thin, <laughs> so I think the way uh, when he did the presentations, uh, you know, he he just he found somebody that was maintaining it. You, yeah, <laughs> and, and, and yeah, I try, I try also, as good as I can, but you know, time's a problem for everyone. <laughs> yeah, if you haven't gone to Hexacorn's site. Hexacorn. Got I don't know what his Twitter feed is, but you can follow him. I do. Um, he's got some great information as well as uh, the topic of the day, too. He has some blog articles about this stuff that he's found as well. Yeah. yeah. His Twitter is Hexacorn. Same thing. It's like an un- underappreciated blog. Uh, I really love the stuff he puts out there. Uh, I actually started from like his first one back in, who, when was that? 98 or something? I, I don't even remember. It was a long time ago. And yeah. the stuff is still relevant today. He's talking oh, about yeah, yeah. those 98 or whatever it was. I, I read APT reports that reference his work that like he discovered a, a thing like five, five, six, seven years ago. Yeah, it's relevant stuff there for sure. Oh, well, it's up to, uh, let's see. So we mentioned uh, Oddvar sites. Uh, the show, the links are in the show note for his sites. But you mentioned one I'm not familiar with, Get Phobins. Oh, yeah, I, I can t- touch on that. So... Uh, we have, uh, I've created a Lulbus project site that covers like every Windows binary we know of that has like extra functionality. Uh, they have a similar one for Unix and Linux binaries that's called GTFO bins. Oh. So if you want to have a look at the other side <laughs> instead of Windows, uh, that's the place to go uh, to search for binaries. I could guess what the acronym stands for. I wonder what that stands for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't want to say it on the show, but Family you get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's a it's a great site, and that was basically the template we used for the Lolbass project as well. So we borrowed a lot of their code uh, because I just had a simple uh, GitHub page when I started out. They made this fancy, fancy, shiny web portal. So we we copied it and added it to our needs. So we basically used their portal for our use. So that's kind right. of let's talk about some tools. Tool. All right. For us, so we're going to talk about a subject that's going to include some logging. I just want to push because this is our, our last uh, episode for our sponsor, Humio. So I wanted to give them a shout out because, um, you know, people always say, how do I practice this? I gave a, a MITRE ATT&CK class in San Antonio for the local uh, Alamo ISSA chapter down there in San Antonio. And um, they said, well, how do I practice this at home? And so Humio offers you a free two gig per day, seven day retention where you can play with this stuff. Take the list that we're talking about from our arc and, and Oddverse stuff and, you know, play with it on your own lab and or home environment. And for free, you can send it to the cloud and, and log this stuff. The Beats uh, client examples are also on Mauer Archaeology to make it easy for you to get started and do exclusions and whatnot. Now, is that only for seven days or does it go on for years? Well, the free is for, forever, um, but you only get seven days of history. So, you know, on the eighth day, if you're looking for something, you're not going to find it, right? So you only have seven days at any given time. You know, it's, it's a good free thing. I get about five systems. Uh, I play with it for my lab portion, the malware portion, the free version. And so when I execute stuff, uh, like, for example, we're we're doing uh, Baldwin's Hacking Fest and uh, I'll be demoing some stuff. I'll have the Humio console up there with my MITRE ATT&CK references showing the things that trigger um, and again, that's all the free environment. So it's good to play with, right? So it's a, it's a great environment. You don't have to build anything. You just got to create an account. You got to 
put some agents on your box, WinLog beat, file beat, whatever, and and send the data, and it gives you a place to play with what it is we're talking about today. And and so the best way to understand it is to actually do it. So go hack yourself and, and get some free uh, log management and go from there. So that's our that's our tool tip for the day for this topic. And then we got Graber again. Oh boy. Oh boy. Yes. Every time he talks, I have more work to do. But at Derby, he says, "So, what'd you get out of the? What'd you get out of this?" I'm like, "You didn't give me any work to do for once, because <laughs> this talk didn't have any new things that I needed to uh, go back and do." Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, I since this is uh, about incident response, um, and since I'm a red teamer, I, I've been to a couple of couple of those, and I have used the sim sweep tool before. And to me, it's like really easy to use and you don't have to deploy agents and stuff so you can easily like scan and a windows-based environment pretty easily and get artifacts out of the boxes and it what uses kind of artifact so like older runs files uh yeah all sorts of things you need basically to to check deeper all executing wmi we, you can also it pulls out event logs and services if i remember correctly and also a list of the running processes so it can really dump a lot of stuff really quickly from like thousands of computers i I like it a lot so i I don't think it's that known so that's why i brought it up yeah sounds like a good lab project for us brian yeah (laughs) and and next is a a site that we use all the time nearsoft yeah i feel like that's kind of a (laughs) a site i use a lot but uh Nobody mentions it for some reason, but it has a lot of great tools. I especially love the DLL export viewer. I use that a lot when I play around with DLL hijacking and stuff. And also the password recovery tools they have. They have for a lot of different different things that you can use for to get the passwords back. And also the list goes on and on. I mean, it's a it's just a treasure chest of tools that's right there. So talk about the password recovery tools. I mean, what's what's different other than uh, something like Mimikatz? Oh, so it depends on the tool, but some of them are like reading stuff out of registry. Like if you have uh, a VNC password, it will decrypt it based on known decrypting hash values or whatever. So it right. uses like known things for getting stuff back. As far as I understand the tools, uh, it also had the ability to read uh, there's a tool that you can read the letters behind the bullet font in Windows. So every time you type, a, you see a password box with a bullet font, you can use a tool to see what's behind it. Uh, so that's, that's pretty neat. Yeah. In terms of what Mimikatz does, it, it connects to LSAS, so it's kind of different, of course. Yeah, I have, so, yeah. I have several of these. I call this the uh, the Russian uh, sysinternal site. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a big user of the Who's IP utility that they have and uh, several others. But yeah, this site has great tools just like sysinternals. So if you're looking for a utility to do something, uh, these standalone GUIs are, are really good. I Actually, the last one I used was pretty interesting. They have a tool for extracting, extracting documents from a mailbox. And in my case, I had... Uh, I was on, this was on a red team, so I was able to download a lot of PST files. But I wanted to like look for sensitive information, and it's much easier if the files are extracted from the mailbox. So you can search using patterns. So they have a tool uh, that you can use that to export like a document, every attachment from an email. So what I discovered was that you can mount up a PST file in Outlook and point the tool towards the PST file and export all the documents. Hmm. So that was pretty sweet for me <laughs> in, mm. a, in a pinch there. Yeah. And the, the site again is Nearsoft, N-I-R-S-O-F-T. Dot net. It's, don't forget the dot net because it's not a dot com site. Oh, yeah. Dot net. Yeah. Yeah. So a friend of mine, Jeremy Atkinson, he, he works at SpectreOps as well. 
together with Matt. Uh, he created a PowerShell script uh, a while back called Get Injected Threat. And what it does, it looks for if someone injects code into a process, it's able to basically figure out figure out if someone actually injected into a process and list it out. So that way you can like scan a computer and see if there's someone that if someone has injected themselves into a process on the computer. Mm-hmm. And it can also you can also run this across several computers at once remotely. So it's a pretty sweet forensics tool basically for figuring out if someone is on a box. Cool. Uh, of course, there are bypasses for getting past this, but but like it's a good tool to have in your <laughs> in your tool set. Right, and then we have s- the last one. Next, Sigma. Yeah, so I don't know if you guys have heard of it. Oh yeah. So it's basically a, it's a standardized. It's like an engine that you use to create standardized rules that you can export to different CM platforms. They have a bunch of rules inside the Git repo already for different APT actors different type of techniques and stuff so you can take that and run it with the tool and export it to either splunk elk windows defender atp or yeah there's a long long list of different cm solutions you can use so you get a pre-created query and stuff so yeah the that's pretty amazing i've looked at this there's a uh, online provider uh, that's out there that we've talked about in the past uh, in regards to a site where they they're a uh, provider or SOC provider, right? So they're a big HP ArcSight house and they have a full extent of some free rules. So they pull down the Sigma rules. It's it's SOC Prime for anybody interested. I've had conversations with several people that contribute to Sigma and I, and say, you know, where does this fit in? How much effort should I spend to take all my malware archaeology-ish uh, queries and whatnot that are in the cheat sheets and convert those to, to Sigma? You know, the one challenge I would have with Sigma is it does a conversion for some basic stuff. You know, great a great example if you look up the the miter attack item for uh, misuse of bits admin can't remember the technique id it's not like event ids where there's a you know shorter list there's a lot of technique technique ids in, in miter attack the sigma queries specifically looks for bits admin.exe and the slash transfer right so some of these rules are pretty simple and so once you had put that into yeah. a splunk or whatnot you would expand you know your query above and beyond it so don't think that these converters will build these massive huge complex uh, queries within your sim it gives you the basic query of the thing that you're looking for like in the example i just gave with bits bits uh, transfer the bits admin transfer stuff but yeah it's an interesting concept to create a generic rule for logging and be able to suck that in or convert it to your item and then expand it from there. What I really think is missing from this project is automatic consumption of Sigma rules by every logging provider. That would make it uh, much more acceptable, I think, and and adopted. Yeah, I totally agree. Right. All right. Our uh, next topic is malware of the month. Now, we, um, one of our favorite, if not the favorite malware that we dealt with over the years was Drydex. Uh, really cool because of the uh, side loading technique that it used. Now uh, it seems to be that it's uh, morphed yet again. There are many versions of it, but now we've got a new one. What's that about? Yeah, so investigating something, we saw, you know, something called Chrome.exe execute, which in and of itself is no big deal. You can name your malware wherever you want. Typical delivery model, right? Word doc calls w script c script powershell command whatever and then downloads a binary from using the scripting tool and launching chrome.exe it can be through a url too you know, right drydex is known to deliver it anyway to sunday but the fact they named it chrome kind of like huh that's interesting chrome let's see what they're doing with chrome.exe right are they putting it in the right places to make it you know more less obvious 
to people when it's executing, if you're looking at command line parameters, etc. In this case, Chrome downloaded, executed, calls scheduled tasks, which creates a task for persistence, so no run key. A scheduled task. So that's you know, somewhat unique in that DrydeX in the past is pretty heavy use of, of run keys. But the cool thing, uh, which again started why I reached out to Oddvar and said, hey, I think I got one for you, is the Chrome.exe calls is the parent of msra.exe, which is then used for comms. Now, the, the trick here is in the execution of this, it actually executes as C Windows Wow 64 msra.exe space chrome.exe. So this is a great example of using something that's already on the box. MSRA is the Microsoft Remote Assistant tool that co companies would use to support uh, users, right? They use MSRA to connect a machine. What, what's your problem? Okay, let's do this, fix this, and etc. So A, it's usually known, known for comms. B, it's normally executed in a line of environments. Any misuse of it would categorize it, in my opinion, as why I reached out to, to Advar and said, got one to add to the list, is this is a low bin. This is a living off the land binary. And so uh, that's what prompted this podcast. And I found it interesting that when we analyzed this uh, in the lab that we saw MSRA space Chrome and we just looked, scratched our heads and went, wait a minute, that's not one of the options here. <laughs> you know, so, uh, and sure enough, MSRA was the thing communicating out to the Netherlands or wherever this malware was communicating. So it was being used for comms, which again is normal. People might whitelist this, though they should never whitelist it going out to some foreign country. It should be used internal only. Um, but I can see how analysts would miss this because eh, it's just MSRA. We use MSRA. Um, that's that's what it was doing. No other items there. MSRA is injected with some stuff. Uh, you can clearly see that in, in the evaluation uh, with whatever tool you're using. And that's the Drydex of the month. At least it's labeled by uh, a couple sandboxes and VT by many providers. So if that's their uh, rejuvenated item, then something interesting to look at and potentially a new lull bin. Somebody will have to engin reverse engineer it, find exactly how it's misusing that MSRA. But yeah, add MSRA.exe to your list of things, admin tools to watch out for, for sure. Yeah, that's an awesome find for sure. So I'm looking forward to someone reversing the Chrome.exe to figure it out. Yep. <laughs> Sam. Right. Okay. Now to our topic of the day, lull bins. Now, when I first heard of the subject lull bin, I thought, okay, this is a binary that you just have to laugh at. You know, just laugh at loud, kind of do a face plant. Why? 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 Oh, goodness. Why? <laughs> are, Microsoft. Are, do we have this on our systems, right? Still. But yes, LOL stands for living off the land uh, binaries that attackers like Advar uses to uh, execute his foo or at least uh, hang around and uh, do some recon and potentially harvest some data off your machine, as well as being sneaky about it because he's not bringing in his own binaries that can be caught by the various tools. So uh, Advar, tell us what you know about LOL bins and how you've been involved in that and uh, et cetera. Kind of give us some background. Yeah, sure. So this basically started uh, on Twitter, where we, the, the security society, had a lot of discussions what we were supposed to call these binaries we used for different things, uh, like using uh, Reg SVR32 for executing code, for instance. So we didn't have like a normalized name for it. So we had people calling it dual-purpose binaries. We had people calling them trampoline binaries, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it ended up me doing a poll. Uh, where I I thought the LOL bin was like a funny name <laughs> to call them. Uh, I did a poll and people agreed that this was a cool name. Uh, and 
to have something to show for, I decided to create an index of all the binaries that I knew that I have noted down over the years. And out of that became the LOL BAS project, Living of the Line, Living of the Land Binaries and Scripts. And that's basically just a repository of all the different ones I know of that can do other stuff. And this grew really, really quick out of proportions. So I had to get some help from some other people as well. So it became really popular. So we have today in the LOL Bass project, we have binaries and we have scripts. And we also have something called libraries or DLLs because they can also be used for other stuff than they than they are intended to do. Now, how many are, are in that list now? I mean, I remember this started, I think, with Casey Smith's application whitelisting bypasses from like 2015-ish, somewhere around there? Yeah, so basically I had a list before I started the LOL Bass project. I had uh, the ultimate AppLocker bypass list. That was a collection of every bypass I knew of. So I basically took that list and added a lot more to the LOL Bass project list. I think right now, I think we're at 107 different entries. Holy moly, this is a long way from what Casey's list of, I don't know, eight, nine, when he was doing his prezos in the early days. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I got a lot of contributions from the community. And also, the thing that is kind of hard when doing this is the definition of what is a living of the line binary. So we landed on the term that it needs to be used for kind of red teaming or advanced attacks for it to have any value yeah so because it's a problem when you get like a lot of pull requests where people are submitting uh, binaries that they think are lol bins but basically the functionality they show is like the functionality you would expect from a binary yeah so it needs to be do something else or bypass something or yeah, be something more, if that makes sense. Be more, do more. Yeah. More than it was originally intended, right? So run DLL32 is heavily used. You can literally call out to the internet, download a script. Run DLL32 is a trusted Microsoft signed binary, so AV EDR will just ignore it. The fact that it's doing a download from the internet seems to be, you know... <laughs> okay by some tools and, and you know that's an example right it wasn't intended to do that well maybe it wasn't originally intended to do it but uh not for misuse in, in this case for you red teamers who uh boo who keep uh giving us, giving us a hard time with it i love how you boo at the red teamers <laughs> well we're, we're blue team defenders right so our job is to catch you and and we do uh, my personal experience is you guys heavily use this uh, unless it fails then you go to something more like javascript or net compiling stuff on the fly you know etc i thought we were friends <laughs> <laughs> we are <laughs> that's why we're purple <laughs> all right so the fun thing you know i think is that i saw that even microsoft started using the term lol bin so it has kind of grown from a pull on Twitter to become the like standardized norm of calling these binaries. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. You're famous for low bin, low bass. <laughs> so can you give us some use cases and also what defenders need to look for uh, when these things are being used? So a typical example would be to, for instance, run a macro on a document that kind of triggers or runs a binary that execute codes, ex execute code. It's kind of doesn't necessarily make any sense because you run you execute code when you run the macro but sometimes you want to blend in so uh, you could for instance do get cert util to download no sorry bits admin to download a file and you can use cert util to decode a base64 encoded file then you can get bits admin again to uh, execute the code if you want to just as an example 
Yeah, in our case, for the blue team side, so what did he do there, right? A, the list we talked about that you should go look at and play with <laughs> in, in regards to monitoring execution, it's not the binary itself executing, it's the parameters or command line that's executing that you need to uh, really pay attention to here. Uh, Brian and I within LogMD look for these kinds of odd obfuscation techniques, whether it's in the DOS obfuscation or in PowerShell. Uh, that too would stick out, so you need to look for, again, the parameters that are being executed here. And he mentioned uh, two utilities here. I'm guessing once he pops the box, he's going he's gonna to run you know, other commands. So the list of, of admin commands from a blue team perspective is what to look for based on what Oddvar just explained. And that's how we go about this blue-red purple solution uh, scenario. Yeah, it's kind of hard to look for a specific binary doing a specific parameter. I mean, nah. I guess it would be easier to look for behavior. Yeah, you basically just say, wait a minute, that that looks weird. You know, what's this slash yeah. transfer? What's this go to HTTP call? Or what's this long base 64? Nobody uses base 64 purposefully, not in our environment, right? So you do have to know what's normal. You may have a solution that's yeah. doing it, but once you whitelist out that, that normal stuff, you know, something like this would generally stick out to us. I, I would see this on a console screen. So there's the key word, whitelisting. I mean, basically you have to know what's normal and whitelist that, right? And then anything outside of that with these binaries as a, as a I guess, a list of interesting executions outside of the whitelisted items, those are the ones you have to key off of, right? Yeah. Remember, uh, Rundle 32 normally executes a Windows. So you're going to get a lot of parameters with that. You'll have to either filter those out in a whitelist, like let's say you're using Splunk or Humio, and you create a lookup list and you drop those binaries or that command line parameter in there and say, I don't want to see that. That's a normal for us. Um, and that's the concept of whitelisting, right? So build a, a lookup list, keep adding these normal things to it. And then as the alerts come through, uh, whether it's EDR or whatever else, you can uh, potentially catch the, uh, the, oddvar, the oddvars of the uh, world. With any luck, yeah. But also, when you're do and when you're adding stuff to a box, you can also introduce new bi uh, living of the line binaries. Like if you install, for instance, a Splunk agent. Yeah. <laughs> if you if you look into the binaries it introduces, uh, they have some interesting functionality. For instance, uh, PowerShell. Oh yeah, the PowerShell is uh, there's. <laughs> you have to actually filter out all that Splunk noise because it is so noisy in your logs. Exactly. So. And then, boom, you get nailed by it. What if I if I use that for my attack instead? That would be hard to detect. Okay, so the things we watch out for are basically the command line parameters. These things run pretty much regularly, uh, depending on your environment. So we can't just key off of these binaries and say, oh, oh, I saw, you know, RegServe32 running. You can't really do that. You just basically have to look at the parameters. Yeah, or you could say if Reg SVR32 connects to the internet, that's kind of yeah, interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Right, so if you see that in a 5156, yeah, that's something to key off of as well. These yeah. things, I, I'm sure some of them do connect to the internet, but most of them don't normally. And so uh, watch out for those. Unless they're talking to Microsoft, right? So that's part of what you have to know is normal, right? Some of these will phone out to Microsoft. You know, it's like, who should Word be phoning out to the internet to? Uh, Microsoft would be the only place it should phone out to if it's going to phone out at all right to understand that behavior of what you know just think where would this thing normally go and try to craft your uh, queries and alerts based on that yeah right and again this is um this is one tool if you if you look into this in your arsenal of course you have to have the uh, layers of security right um this may catch something and it may correlate with something else that'll that'll catch it as well 
and just add to that, add to your list of things to say, wait a minute, this this looks bad, right? This shouldn't be like the sole thing you're looking at because it is hard. It's very hard to detect these things and to uh, get the proper whitelisting going and the, and the uh, parameters as well. Now, out of the 101-ish of these things, I'm going to guess 90 of them normally don't execute daily on a box in Windows. So I'm just monitoring for the execution of these sometimes is key. Like CertUtil doesn't really execute that much. I don't see it execute that much. If somebody in IT is doing something on a server and and doing some certificate stuff maybe, but um, that's where the command line parameter will tell me. But a lot of these I don't think normally execute, which is an important point because it's the, the ones that are noisy is where I think Oddvar would pick on or, or Pentester would pick on is pick on the ones that are noisy because it's really hard to uh, filter out all these all these no- normal noises and therefore I can sneak in and no one will notice. Another good point is to use whitelisting. So you block binaries you know that you don't use on a day-to-day use. Yeah. Uh, you could use AppBlocker, for instance, to, to really block the attack surface when you land on a box. Only available in Enterprise. Boo, Microsoft. Yeah. Please make it available. But you also have education. Uh, SKU as well. Yeah. What about frequency? I mean, one ta- attack that I saw, run DLL32, was running to connect to the internet about every 30 seconds uh, for a command and control. Yeah, quantity. Yeah, that could be something. That could be a lot. A lot of people whitelist these by a certificate. I ah, trust everything Microsoft. Oh, yeah. that's bad. <laughs> and that's why this living out the land is, is so valuable, right? Yeah. Right. And then, so let's talk about uh, antivirus and EDRs. They're obviously aware of this, so they pretty much got you covered, right? Well. <laughs> Wait a minute. I don't have a laughing track. I just don't have a laughing track. <laughs> that's as close as I can get. Oh, wait. No, this is a better one. <laughs> yeah. So I think in most cases, if uh, let's say, for instance, Reg SVR32, as of today, if you run it like the standard way of doing the attack with the remote SCT file, Windows Defender will block it. But uh, it's not hard to <laughs> to change it around to bypass Windows Defender. Then we just talk- change what around exactly? So, for instance, in this case, I know that uh, Windows Defender is looking for the keywords HTTP and scrubj.dll in the same sentence. If it sees that combined with the command, it will just block it. So if you could think for yourself how to bypass it, but yeah. I have a few ones. I can't, of course, disclose everything here. You're but... no fun. Where's the purple yeah. here? Come on, man. See, <laughs> that, that is why Red Team... Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you one. So <laughs> you, you could basically just, before you execute, you could pipe it to an alternate data stream and execute from the alternate data stream, uh, meaning that you take scrub uh, J DLL, you type, you, the command you, you use is type scrub uh, J DLL, then you do like a, um, a pipe to, then you pipe it to a random file somewhere uh, and a colon and add it to a stream. Then you can call the same command, but instead of referencing scrub J DLL, you can reference that alternate data stream on a file and you can bypass it. Yeah. So boo AV. Nice. And and alternate data streams. Uh normally you double click on a file, open it up, you'll never see that. Yeah. You have to actually go looking for it. Yeah, I, because Windows only shows one stream by default and that's the data mm-hmm. stream. Uh, but you can add uh, several streams to a file. That's how NTFS works. Uh, and in the show notes, I added a, a, a link to a gist where I have like a lot of different binaries you can use for adding stuff into um, into alternate data streams, and also uh, com- uh, binaries you can use to execute stuff out of bi- alternate data streams as well. Now, I think there's a Nearsoft utility for alternate data streams. 
Just yeah, yeah, there are. Uh, <laughs> and there are also a controls tool, I think. Yep, uh, there is. Yeah. How about EDRs? Now you think EDRs would be the next step up from AV in this aspect, but um, I, I know that there are definitely issues with EDR as well. And I think again, because of of the noise of some of these, it may be. They opted not to create a signature because so many false positives, which they don't want to do, they're hoping something else, like maybe the way it got dropped before it executed, would get caught. But I would think EDRs have a similar uh, scenario. Are you experiencing that as the uh, the red team side? Yeah, so EDRs are defi- uh, definitely harder to bypass, for sure. They have more behavioral detection. It's it's not only you, you, you need to bypass the parameters, and you also need to make it look more legit in terms of how it's communicating and what it's doing in terms of what calls and whatever. So you might bypass uh, the first part of the EDR by getting it to run, but the next part is harder because you need to have a code that kind of doesn't look suspicious. So that means adding a lot of junk code for it to look more realistic. I mean, like dumping game code into... Uh, like we <laughs> Yeah, something like yeah. that. <laughs> So the heuristics uh, give it a pass, right? Yeah, or you could key it or make it harder for them to inspect or whatever. So there's yeah, there, there's a ton of different ways of interacting with EDRs, but it makes it harder for a red teamer, of course. You use a lot of time just getting past EDRs these days, and that's the big challenge many times. Yeah. Okay. So we talked about things running on the system and look for the parameters. What about uh, other types of logging that you could look for on the system uh, that might indicate some of this is going on? You know, in the case of Windows, it's a 4688 process execution event. Uh, Sysmon's got ID1, which is the same as a 4688. And then ID7 is is a DLL, right? A module loading. Are there anything else of those items, 5156, talking out to the internet, etc.? Uh, any, any authentication you might do, but I don't think those are going to occur with the with the low bins that I'm aware of. What kind of other logging techniques do you see an option for people here? So I'm I'm thinking uh, many of these binaries actually drop files to disk, even though they're fileless. So they have like a temp file somewhere. Yep. So I'm guessing you could turn on file auditing, but that again makes a lot of kind of noise. So there's a, there's a cheat sheet for that if anybody is looking for how to do file auditing. <laughs> oh, awesome. So I know this is hard, but uh, that's at least something you can look for. And many of these commands, like, for instance, the workflow compiler, that's uh, a known bypass for application-wide testing. It generates its own log file somewhere that you can look for. So there are many different kind of things you can look for in addition to traditional event logging. So file drops would be something to, to watch for, which Sysmon also does with a 13, 14, yeah, 15 yeah, range, right? But those are those are stupid noisy. I mean, yeah. I almost don't recommend them because they're so noisy just from Windows in general that they'll roll your logs even if you make the log file really big. It's not something I really recommend using. Um, using the cheat sheets to set file auditing on key directories, like anything in the user space, uh, would be a logical thing to do because that's probably where you're going to drop in from more times than not. Would be would be my approach. Yeah, I guess the best approach would be to have a combination of whitelisting, application whitelisting, and monitoring. For instance, preventing execution from specific folders or allowing only certain files or binaries to execute. Whitelisting is hard. A lot of corporations. Yeah, but it's not that hard. <laughs> yeah, a lot of companies just won't go there because of the the sheer administrative back end, right? So if not, then you're really in the detection mode and monitor mode yeah. without whitelisting. Yeah, but it makes uh, the job much easier if you. If you have whitelisting implemented in terms of what you need to monitor for, I would assume. So it seems like these um, 
LOL bins and looking for them is sort of advanced, right? You got to spend some time, you got to spend some effort. I mean, what level is this on a scale of one to 10 to try and detect this stuff for approaching eight? I'm not sure. Um, Good question. I know, I know that's a tough question. It's kind of uh, objective. I would say uh, the opposite of objective. There are many other things I think I would have in place before I started looking for LOL bins, I guess. I'm not sure. I, I would say it's pretty high to kind of get a good detection of this because you you cannot look for specific binary names as we discussed. You have to look for both combination of parameters and what they're doing and what's normal. So I would say it's pretty hard to get it right. But again, I don't have a lot of experience building out detections, so it's kind of hard for me to answer that correctly. <laughs> well, you know, you got to start at the basics, right? We're actually going to have a podcast about uh, the basics and, and preparation. You've got to be able to set up your logging, collect the right things, get it collecting locally, uh, big faux pas. You turn this stuff on, like the cheat sheets say, and totally forget about changing the log size so the stuff rolls in, in five minutes or less. Um, so you got to increase the log size. You got to collect all this stuff, and then you got to have a place to send it, right? If you're doing logging, um, if you have EDR, then hopefully you can build additional rules, right? So you got to do the basics first. You got to get the AV working properly. You got to get the EDR installed if you're using EDR. You got to get the logging all configured. You got to get it collecting somewhere, and then you can build upon that to, to do this. Um, once you're there, then I think you can you can start easily building a lookup list where you can add these binaries and start another lookup list to say not these binaries or not these parameters to get good results. But yeah, it's definitely uh, probably a 301 class, not a 101 class for sure. We talked about this uh, the other day, you and I, Michael, uh, you know, if you read a, a book, a textbook, you probably want to start with chapter one and don't skip to chapter 12 first. So you need to do the basic <laughs> yeah. blocking and tackling first. This is a little bit more of chapter 12, right? It's kind of what for, we're for sure. getting at. This is not something that you just want to jump into if you don't have basic logging, you know, done, right? And running well. Another point is this is not something your tools are going to automatically detect, you know, 90% of. This is probably in the 50, 60 percentile. So there is a pretty big gap that can be taken advantage of even if you have EDR and whatnot. So this is this is where this becomes a, a good technique for the bad guys as well as the uh, the good bad guys like Odver. <laughs> good bad guys. I like that. <laughs> It's, it's a gap that we have to pay attention to. That's why the podcast, right? This is real things you can do in your job and, and really go back and do or set budget for because you need a solution that's going to allow you to detect this or effort. Hey, I need, you know, a week to go spend some time to build some additional rules for lull bins in my EDR because I, I see it missing things. Yeah. And how to determine that is the very next question, Brian. Yeah. Speaking of technique, are these things in MITRE ATT&CK? right? Because they should have them all. Oh, yeah. So you, I know for a fact that if you use Atomic Red Teaming, that's from Red Canary, they have built a tool set to test a lot of these based on the MITRE framework. Uh, I'm not sure if MITRE has every single binary. I don't think so. No, they do not. They have eh, a dozen maybe. Because, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. They might infer the other 80, but, you know, with their generic wording. But, yeah, they specifically call register 32, run DLL, etc. Yeah, it's kind of a mix of techniques and binary names, I, I feel, in the MITRE. I don't, I don't, they don't have every single binary, for sure. You mentioned testing. Uh, is there another tool that 
uses these specifically? So the only one I know of is Atomic Red Teaming from Red Canary. That's the only one I know of, but there's probably more. Uh, Uber makes one, Uber Meta. I don't know what they test within it. I haven't used it. And also, obviously, MITRE has their own. But I think this is a good place for people to start is go look at the MITRE ATT&CK framework, map those to the tools you have for the lull bins, as many as you can muster. Try to turn those like yellow and green that, yeah, I can see that. Oh, it's noisy, so make it yellow. Or, yeah, I can see that. And, yep, it's not noisy at all, so it's green. And make sure you can alert in some capacity to it and uh, start there. But MITRE ATT&CK can definitely help you here and give you a place to start. Like, where do, I, where do I start? Start with MITRE ATT&CK and expand from there with the lists we talked about. But you gave a good tool on testing. Uh, obviously, you can manually go in and, and find either malware samples and or presentations uh, like Casey Smith would be a good place to start on some of the command lines that uh, that he's shown as, in some of his prezos. Uh, we have some links in the show notes where you can go try some of these and see if your EDR, AV, or your alerts and logging or whatever else you're using will trigger on that. Be probably a good place to test as well. All right. Um, anything else? Advar, you want to, any shout outs or you want to mention anything else? Uh, something we missed maybe? Oh, uh, I think we covered it pretty good. I feel I don't. You speaking in any cons coming up? Oh, so I actually, <laughs> I feel like I finally am on a break right now. So I've been traveling a lot <laughs> the last eight, nine months. For the rest of the year, I don't have any planned cons. But uh, I have someone com- some coming up in uh, in February. In Norway, we have this uh, conference called HackCon in Oslo. That's a conference I always go to each year. That's at least nice. on my list. Uh, I'm also trying to get into uh, troopers in Germany. We'll see how that goes. I need to write a call for paper soon. <laughs> Yeah, they. Uh, I was told about that one as well from uh, Olaf. Um, Troopers would be a good one. Uh, I looked at the agenda. I'm like, I don't see a whole lot of blue team here. He says, a good paper, they'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, but if yeah. everybody thinks it's a red team con and they come there and here's Mr. Defender, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. I do want to go to Germany. They say it's the the European version of DerbyCon. That's what they say. Well, that's yeah, what that's, I say. That, that's what I've been told. And yeah. so that does have my interest. And also they have good bear in Germany. So it's worth that it. they do. That they do. All right. Definitely. So if you're you kick back one too many and you can't remember what's in this podcast, just rem- just know that we do have pretty good show notes. So check out the show notes. We've got all the links, uh, the topics we covered, links to articles, tools, all that stuff in the show notes. So uh, if you're a forgetful person uh, like me, then you can always refer to that and download it. Well, Advar, thanks for joining us on the podcast, and uh, it's been a pleasure. Uh, the pleasure is all ours, all on this side of the table. So uh, appreciate it and hope to have you back. If you oh. have anything uh, else that comes up in the future, just let us know. And we may uh, want to talk about it on this podcast. Awesome. It was a pleasure being here. And uh, thanks for your time. Yeah, and give my uh, my internet son, Ben 10, a uh, hug for me or a high five on a video call or something. <laughs> tell I him, sure, tell I him sure dad will. says hi. He'll, uh, he'll laugh. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll tell him hi. Hee-haw. <laughs> All right, that's it for BDIR. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.